You're listening to The Whole Church Podcast. Our efforts to educate and unite the church are made possible thanks to our sponsors on Captivate and on Patreon. You can get bonus content of our show on either of those platforms or on Apple Podcasts with a private subscription to the Amazal Ministries Podcast Network. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 through 26 in the Christian Standard Bible. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes, because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil, who has taken them from captive to do his will. In this section of scripture, the writer just finished explaining the importance of avoiding fights about words and to prioritize instead the message that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. After condemning a group of people for preaching a false message about resurrection, the author writes the above scripture. In context of all of this, Father Jonathan, how does this section of scripture teach us to disagree better? I would say, I think prioritizing one's relationship uh, with God and allowing us to move from that a place of faith, a place of preparedness in the context of our own faith will allow us to uh, to respond to those who would disagree with us um, in a loving and hospitable way, mm. leaving space for connection and reconnection. Mm. Good stuff. Amen. Hey everybody, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast, back with our controversial Unity series, uh, hopefully one of your favorite series. We're having a lot of fun with it so far. I'm really excited as today we're talking about uh, what's in the Bible. You know, last time we talked about uh, how true the Bible is, biblical inerrancy. Today we're talking about the biblical canon and who better to do that with than the one and only Father Jonathan of the uh, Greek Orthodox Church, Holy Trinity Orthodox Church here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Father Jonathan, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Always a joy. It's always a pleasure to see your face, man. Um, and I couldn't do this without um, the God of the mics. Uh, the one who is, um, I don't know, I I'm running out of lore. He's so great. We've run out of stories of his greatness because our word simply can't name the greatness that is TJ Tiberius One Blackpool. How's it going? <clears throat> it's good. Thanks. Yeah. yeah at any time. <laughs> welcome back to your show. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and if you're back on our show, you should consider checking out the Honest Ministry Podcast Network. Uh, the website link is below for other shows like ours, shows that we know. There is a paid subscription for the network on Apple Podcasts uh, where you can get extra content from all of the shows in the network, including ours. And check out our merch store. There's good stuff there. It's true. That's true. I am um, just because how recordings happen sometimes. I'm currently still wearing the shirt I was wearing during our intro, uh, which is uh, for our other podcast, Systematic Geekology. Again, I just have to plug, these shirts are just so darn comfortable. Um, we had the option of a cheap shirt that maybe more people would buy because it's cheap or a comfy shirt that's like $3 more. And I said, you know what? You know what people are going to wear? They're not going to wear the cheap shirt they bought to support someone. They're going to wear the comfy shirt because you know what? It doesn't matter what's on it if it's comfy enough. It's pretty true. Unless it's just straight up blasphemy. I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but there are lines. Yeah. Hopefully not in the shirt though. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, with that, uh, of course, we're going to go to my favorite uh, spiritual practice of unity. Um, you know, we can't have disunity 
or being as silly as I like to be. And uh, this time, Father Jonathan, uh, TJ and I already answered during the, the intro episode. We're just asking all of our guests for the series to tell us about the silliest argument you've ever had or remember having. Oh, <clears throat> wow. So, um, <laughs> I, so I, I have lots of siblings, um, and oftentimes we find ourselves uh, arguing uh, about pop culture things. And I, I think I do remember my brother having an argument over our uh, perspective on a Marvel movie. Um, I thought it was good uh, because it followed uh, the, the, the source material pretty well. Uh, but he was familiar with a different version of the source material. Sometimes they like do the same thing more than ones like the Infinity Gauntlet uh, versus in, uh, in, uh, Infinity War or something like that. And uh, and I just remember like we really got into it about like his perspective and my perspective on it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That ultimate universe version of things really messed stuff up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So before we do anything else, we're gonna get straight to the point. We're gonna we're gonna go ahead and air this out. How does your tradition think of the biblical canon? Uh, what is your stance on the canon? Okay, so uh, for the your listeners uh, who are, aren't familiar, much like the Catholic tradition, the Orthodox Church has an extended deuterocanon. Uh, I don't think we always call it as such. Um, which includes books that in the Protestant canon um, and the Jewish canon would be considered apocryphal. Mm -hmm. And we also have books that we consider apocryphal um, that, uh, that are not part of the biblical canon, which have been handed down. Uh, a, a good example would be Enoch. We would say mm, that yeah. like, although that was in certain manuscripts of Septuagint, it, it, it's not, it's not biblical canon. Uh, we have, in comparison to the 39 books of the Old Testament in the Protestant and Jewish canon, or at least certain Jewish canons, mm -hmm. um, we have 10 extra books, and whereas the Catholics will have uh, seven additional books. Um, but one of our books is actually, um, it's actually like two books split in two. So there's really only a two book difference between us and the Catholic. What are those um, books? So the two, so the two, the, the all the books or the books, the of two the, that y'all have that the Catholics and us don't have. Uh, so we we include Third Maccabees oh. and Ezra's. Uh, so Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra's given a different name, like first Ezra's and then second Ezra's. One yeah. of those two. Um, is is an additional book, but it's not what's usually in books with uh, Bibles with apocryphal text. It's not the one labeled Second Ezra. It's it's kind of a weird thing. So it's given yeah. a different number, um, but it, it's part of the Ezra Nehemiah section uh, of, hmm. of uh, Jewish history. So it's like and a, a secret. Just an extra book. It's a secret third Ezra that yeah, we call Second like Ezra's. <laughs> yeah, something Perfect. like that. Yeah. So, um, so we, we will include those, uh, the formation of the canon, uh, although, although we, we, the, the canon was informed by the Jewish, uh, perspective, 
Um, much like there was disagreement about the canon at the time of Christ, there were certain communities um, who would only read the first five books of Moses and, and all the other books were not included in their canon. Some would include uh, the, what would be in, a, in, a, in the Protestant canon with much different numbers. I think there's 22 books in the Jewish canon, but it, it amounts to the 39 books that the Protestant canon has. Uh, and then there were groups like the Essenes who had lots of additional books with varying levels of reference as scripture. Um, so there was some fluidity there. Um, the early church, once it moved into the Greek-speaking world, gave priority to the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament because it was already in Greek, and it's the text that the apostles quoted from uh, in the New Testament. And so many of those books became part of the, the liturgical um, reading, public reading of Scripture. And over the course of four centuries, there was a, a kind of a fluid distribution of books that ultimately would we would consider canon and additional books that didn't quite make the cut. Uh, but they're still revered text, profitable uh, for reading and such. Mm -hmm. they, they, the, what we call these books that are additional, uh, that it would be above the, um, the 39 books of the Old Testament, um, would be anayina skomena in Greek, which is essentially like profitable for reading. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a lot of fluidity there. And in some Orthodox traditions, like the Russians, there's additional books in the appendix. Uh, in the Ethiopian tradition, which is not in communion with the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, I think there's even more books. I forget the, the total number, eight, like 84 or something, something much mm -hmm. larger. So there is some fluidity with canon, um, but the, the the and this is only for the Old Testament. There's no additional books in the New Testament. We have the same 27 book canon uh, for the New Testament. Uh, but at the time that the canon was being formed, there was questions even about which of the letters were were authentic. Uh, the Book of Revelation was not was you know was the last to be included in the canon. And so there was a, a long process by which the church, out of its experience, um, reflected upon what their experience of divine human communion was within the church. And the books that ultimately became canon were those ones that corresponded to the lived experience of the, of the church. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, and, um, and and what was uh, what was used for public reading. Uh, for the New Testament, it had to have some apostolic lineage, whether it was written by one of the apostles or the apostolic communities of the early church. But what uh, what I would hope that the listeners would would realize is, like within the within the first generation of Christians, there were churches that existed uh, for 20 years or so before Paul's first letter uh, mm -hmm. was received, and he probably wrote other letters that you know are lost to time that might have been. You know, having some inspiration to them, um, but it is what, what we what was what remained is what we have in the uh, in the canon of scripture as it is. But it wasn't until you know seventy, uh, like sixty five, seventy A.D. that Mark was written. Matthew is somewhere between seventy and seventy two, seventy three. Um, Luke around the same time, and John. Some people date John to almost the end of the first century. So there was a there was a good yeah. better part, like, like three quarters of of a, of a century of time before an actual uh, an actual New Testament was written 
Um, and what would they would read publicly, uh, the early Christians was, you know, was the Old Testament readings, um, the, the, the law and the prophets and the writings, um, and as well as uh, we would, we would argue these additional books as well. They were familiar enough with them that although Enoch wasn't included in the, in the canon, it's quoted in the New Testament or it's alluded to or quoted in Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, and, lot, and lots of these texts are alluded to uh, in the New Testament and in, in the sayings of Christ and the writings of the apostles. So they, they were familiar with these and probably could have read them most likely publicly for their, yeah. their wisdom. Yeah. I've, uh, for a long time, I've been petitioning to get Enoch canonized. Uh, my voice matters not at all. I love the book of Enoch. But uh, my understanding is even Second Peter, that's part of why a lot of people didn't want to canonize it is because it quoted the book of Enoch. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the, the reality is like, there's, there's, it's not like haphazard, the books that were rejected, like the new Testament, obviously there, there, you know, there was a sense at which, you know, these are not authentic writings of the apostles or the apostolic communities. And in the old Testament, like Enoch, it, it's a beautiful text, but there's, there's instances in the book of Enoch that kind of, that contradict standard Jewish ends. Christian understandings mm -hmm. of theology around um, Messiah and incarnation and, and all of that, and so um, and so it was rejected uh, for theological reasons. It did, it did, it, it yeah. was inconsistent theologically with the experience of the church. Yeah, I, I think uh, in order for me to get my way, every church out there would have to drop uh, biblical literalism and inerrancy. Um, I don't see that happening anytime soon, so no. I'm not going to get my way. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. But I, um, I don't know. So some, we mentioned some of the books that are in the Bible, I mean, even like Song of Solomon I, or Song of Songs, however you want to word it, was also kind of really questioned if it should be canon or not. So some of my, just kind of laying in the background, when I grew up, I was always given this sense that once upon a time, there was some meeting where all Christians all simultaneously completely agreed. It was a movement of the Holy Spirit, and that's why we have the Bible we have. There was no doubt ever, and that's why we can trust it. And then you, you study history, and you grow up, and you're like, this this kind of version I was told, like the children's church version of how the Bible came to be, uh, isn't quite right, right? Like most interesting, this is where we originally were going to have Pastor Will from the Lutheran tradition on. Um, Augustine and St. Jerome had major disagreements about the Bible, including some of these books that the Catholic and Orthodox Church revere as part of the Bible, like Maccabees, all that, where Augustine wanted them in, St. Augustine wanted them in, and Jerome maintained they were, the word you used earlier, they're profitable for reading, but they shouldn't be canonized, was his belief. Um, Augustine won, and that's why the Catholic version of the Bible was the only version of the Bible until like 500 years ago. So Protestants kind of lose on that tradition end, but you know, we don't revere tradition, but which is ironic because that's my other argument for completely doing away with tradition that I'm like, um, if you do away with tradition, you don't have a Bible. Like you can't get the Bible without tradition confirming the canon. <laughs> yeah. And in the Orthodox perspective, like we would consider scripture as part of tradition because tradition is that which is handed down. Um, uh, that makes and sense. So, and so for us, the, and, and uh, it, it maybe has the most substance, uh, you know, it like every nothing can contradict scripture. So that is the measure by which we, we measure theology. We, um, but, you know, it's part of a, 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 a constellation of things that make up holy tradition, including you know, the 
the councils, which is where the doc, the, the choice for the candidate, like where we affirm the reality, like affirmed the inspiration of the scripture. It's like the scriptures are, are, are inspired, but we affirmed it as a community and says, yes, we, this is how we receive it as if it is inspired because it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the councils, the writings of the church fathers and mothers, uh, music, iconography, all these different things that we have as part of our holy tradition, but scripture is, you know, is, is the first among equals, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think some of them, this is, I'll be done with this part, just kind of getting the background of, I think the, the question of the Maccabees is some of the most interesting parts of this because our Protestant traditions, we don't have any of the books of the Maccabees in our Bible yet. It's some of the books were the most certain of who wrote it. They were written the most closely to the event. So they're probably some of the most historically accurate of all the books. Like as far as like if you're just criticizing it, not as someone who is religious, but as someone who is looking at these books of what is accurate or not, the Maccabees seems like it would be the most accurate of all the books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I I think it explains why the events of Jesus in the gospel are so important. And yet, and this is me just really arguing against my own side here. Protestants leave this out. And I'm like, what? Why? (laughs) Which is why I wish Will was here to tell me why. But I'm like, this is what? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it it makes a lot of I mean, it it makes sense because there's also underlying this this understanding that there was this and it's spoken about and it was it was a common Jewish experience in the Mm -hmm. in the post exile that God stopped speaking to them. And, mm-hmm. and, and so the, one of the reasons like, like Malachi becomes the, uh, the last prophet is because that's the, that's the end of it. You know, like that God stops speaking mm-hmm. to his people because they've, they've strayed so far from him. And so there's this period of, of centuries of silence. And that's mm-hmm. part of the Jewish, um, like religious cultural experience in the, in the post exile. Um, yeah. So that's part of the that's part of the story as well. So it makes sense where there is like a concern about it because th- these these books that are historic books, um, like Maccabees, and then like the wisdom because we have quite a few books in the that we classify as wisdom literature amongst the um, mm-hmm. uh, amongst the, uh, the 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 Deuterocanon, and then also the the other thing was language. Like these uh, when the when the Jews were you know in, in the first century determining their canon of scripture in a kind of more permanent way, one of the deciding factors was if it didn't exist in Hebrew, it, it, it didn't belong. And although things like um, the wisdom of uh, of Sirach uh, Ben Ooh. Jesus, um, like that was translated from an original Hebrew or Aramaic text. Um, but, but it was only trans, but it's only transmitted in, in, into that time period in its Greek version and its translation yeah. with its commentary, um, uh, from the grandson, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and so it's, it's like, there's that whole element of it as well. This kind of purifying, you know, post fall of, uh, post destruction of the temple, the, the rise of rabbinic Judaism, um, in that period. Um, there was kind of a push towards a towards a, like a more purely Hebraic um, uh, Judaism. Yeah, yeah. Two last notes, not questions. And then TJ's going to fun segment. We're going to jump into. Um, I, I do just want to point out if you read, and I highly recommend everyone reads "Who Wrote the Bible" by Richard Elliot Friedman. He's a Jewish scholar. Love most of his work. 
I can't think of anything of his work that I don't adore. Um, his book on Exodus is great. But uh, the book, Who Wrote the Bible, he kind of breaks down the Deutero, like the first five books of the Bible and onwards, what he thinks. And um, it'll give you a really high respect for Ezra and make it really hard for you not to want to include the other books of Ezra in your canon. <laughs> um that aside, the, the other thing I just wanted to point out, uh, it's going to really help you understand a lot of Jewish traditions and even some of our Christian traditions. If you look at the canon of the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, the very last word of the book of Malachi, destruction, death. And um, that really feeds into a lot of these traditions and um, how we interact with our face and culture around us. So I think it's an important yeah. word. So before we get too far into our main topic, we're going to do a quick controversial detour we're putting every guest in the series in the hot seat. We're going to run through as many of the following questions as we can in five minutes. Some are theological, some are purely pop culture. Uh, I'm just going to choose them at random for the next five minutes. We're going to look for your hottest takes and controversial opinions. You ready? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Can't wait. Uh, <laughs> what is one thing that you thought you would never like that later you've come to enjoy? Ooh, uh... I I never thought that I would enjoy uh, like being this like um, in charge of such like a large community because I'm so introverted and shy. Yeah. Um, but I have fallen in love with the community that I have ser I'm serving now, and um, and I talk to people even though I like hate crowds. I, I I schmooze with the best of them. Like I never thought that this would be like uh, like an enjoyable thing because I, I was so shy, like painfully shy. I hated public speaking. So taking on this role um, has been like an unexpected joy. Ah, praise God. Sweet. Uh, what's one ta hot take you have about a cartoon we may have grown up with? Oh, um, it's like a, I would say a collection. I have a, like a, a renewed appreciation for um, the Nickelodeon cartoons. Uh, but like, I, I, I don't know. I grew up in the era with like, Hey Arnold, um, real monsters, even the Rugrats. Like, <laughs> like I was like, I was like, I was of the age to watch those. I was like before like the SpongeBob and, and that age. So, um, and I, like, there are some like really interesting things. And then I've noticed, I, I've realized that I am as old as the Rugrats parents were in the show at this point. And they look so oh, old and I feel <laughs> as old as they look. Oh no. <laughs> so, uh, who is your least favorite church father or theologian? Uh, I, I don't think I have a least favorite uh, father. Uh, I can tell you a lot about ones that I, I do love, but uh, <laughs> I read them. Uh, some of them are more difficult. Like one of my favorites is St. Maximus, but he is terribly difficult to read in translation and even harder in the original Greek. Um, but I, 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 you know, I've... I wrote my master's and my my PhD on him, so oh. um, yeah. So <laughs> I, I can't say that I have a least favorite. I read mm -hmm. them all equally, and I revere them all. So, what is one movie, book, or song that you love that no one else seems to care about, or they hate? Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I can't say like a particular song, and this might be controversial at this time, but you said be controversial. I'm like a secret Swifty that's not so secret. Yeah. So I have all of her albums, uh, and I, I, I listen to them. Like my road trips, like she gets me through my road trips up to Boston, <laughs> like a good portion of them. Are you yeah. are you pumped for the, uh, the um, Tortured Poets? 
Yeah, I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing what she does with it. I'm, Me too. Uh, yeah. I like Evermore. Uh, so what is one thing that everyone loves that you just don't care for? Uh, you know, I, I used to love it, um, but maybe in my old age, I've, I've kind of lost my love for it. it I, I People love to travel and, and go places. I'm really a, a homebody now. It might just because of exhaustion, like the thought of going anywhere that I don't have to go. Uh, just <laughs> sounds fair. awful. Uh, but I used to like, I traveled the world. I've been all over the world, uh, Australia, the Middle East, uh, Europe, uh, all, almost every state. And now I'm like dreading having to go to like another part of the state I presently live in. So <laughs> Man, that's that. a good one. Yeah. I should have said that. Uh, <laughs> you like the movie Titanic? Titanic, yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting one. Uh, I, I I do remember it was when I did see it. I saw it in theaters, and it was very uncomfortable because I saw it with my parents. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, rank the Spider Men: Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland from best to worst. Uh, okay. So I'm gonna do this two ways. Uh, <laughs> I like uh, uh, Tobey Maguire is the Spider-Man of my youth. So he's like the first and just like nostalgia. And and, and then I would say Tom Holland, just because I like how he's incorporated into um, into the uh, into the world, the MCU. And then Andrew Garfield, I think um, Tobey Maguire uh, was like the would have been like he was the best Peter Parker. Yeah, like from the comics, true. Andrew Garfield was like the best Spider-Man, like also in his true. dialogue and all of that. And and um, and Tom Holland's kind of like the best all around. Then he just fits the uh, early year yeah. character better than the other two because he was he was I, actually closer to the age. It would be really hard for me to agree more with Father Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's time. We, we did it almost perfectly. <laughs> nice. Nice. I. uh I love the Spider-Man question. The problem is that I could do a whole episode on it, but then we'd have to change this to a systematic ecology show. <laughs> you have to get me on one of those, too, then. We we will. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. So getting away from the Spider-Man, uh, you know, saving that for later. I am marking that down for later. Uh, what qualifications do you think should be what we consider as scripture? Yeah. So... I think, I mean, like I would obviously argue like it is what has been received by the church. And so it is um, it is the people of God living a life of faith that, you know, recognize that which is scripture, you know, as as, as being consistent with the, the lived experience of faith. Mm-hmm. And when we have this 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 aspect of ourselves where we can trace our historical, our practice lineage, our theological lineage back to the early church you know most scholars would agree like we changed the least now some people can say that's good that's bad i think that the consistency mm-hmm. that we have that this is what has been handed down to us is kind of like what one of the most important things and then the historical way in which it was chosen is for the new testament in particular like again apostolic it, like apostolic origins um it uh it you know it, it, it actually can like gospels actually contain the gospel message um uh no no push towards like hidden knowledge or something like that like you'll see in gnostic texts um and then it was and part of the 
passing down is it was read publicly. Um, and in the Orthodox Church, just about all the books of the Bible, certainly of the New Testament, are read publicly with the exception of Revelation. But our funeral service is replete with uh, references and um, and uh, uh, and quotations from uh, from the book of Revelation. So it, it is there, but it's, it's, it's embedded in the liturgy rather than uh, uh, read publicly. Mm-hmm. All right. And how, how sure are you that we have the right canon of scriptures and that none was left out or added that shouldn't have been? Um, I trust that God will have, would have provided for us everything that we needed in terms of his written revelation. Um, I don't think that his revelation is limited to that. And that's where, you know, different traditions would disagree with my own tradition. Um, but I think we have, mm-hmm. we, I, I am comfortable to say we, we, we have this, we are sufficient in what we have. Um, and that's, and ultimately, I think that's what the, like, the, the t- first Timothy or the Timothy passage is talking mm-hmm. about. Like, it is everything we have. It is sufficient for what we have. I don't think he's specifically mm-hmm. saying that, uh, that's all we need. I would disagree in some of those interpretations, but I say it is what we have is sufficient for us to cultivate the virtues that it's talking about in that passage. Yeah. And I think uh, some Christians forget when we're talking about like the Bible being sufficient. Um, To me, that's very equivalent to technically flat bread and water is sufficient to survive. That doesn't mean it can't be better than that. (laughs) Yeah. No. So are you open, open to being wrong? And if so, what would it take? To change your mind, um, I think I think we. I I wrote an article one time. I forget. I think it was the first draft. I think I, I ended up pulling this section out because it was kind of going against the point. Not going against. It just was. It was not consistent with the point I was trying to make in the passage. Um, but uh, I, I talked about how sometimes having a grounded agnosticism around certain things is a valuable way to be. Because ultimately, we are taking things on faith, which is not like a blind faith, but it's a trust that God is faithful to us, and therefore, we are faithful to him. And in that, I am, like, I am willing to, to be wrong. Um, and it, there were just, I would say it would have to be some revelatory thing. And, you know, I, I still, you know, adhere to the wisdom that, you know, the church provides for us. Um, you know, the, the mechanism by which we make determinations about things like that. Um, because it, it, it's not about individual reason. It's not about the whims of the times, but it is about a uh, shared communal experience. It is in the shared communal experience that truth claims emerge you know, from an Orthodox perspective. Hmm. Uh, we don't reason our way into theology. We don't reason our way into uh, the way that we do things. It, uh, uh, Truth claims are communally normed. It is the shared experience of a community that determines the truthfulness yeah. of something. Yeah, which uh, it's one of those interesting things that really sets apart the Orthodox Church, in my opinion, because um, you know a lot of the Catholic Church kind of is has a very similar tone, but there is still you know the Pope that is kind of overseeing. And e- even though I don't think they would say it's like a hierarchy, I think it's still kind of a an authority figure kind of yeah. I, I don't know and they also have the magisterium which is another yeah. prong of, of their their authority we don't have a teaching authority like with that type of 
like cloudware would be, you know, scripture tradition and the magisterium. Uh, but we do have the cloud of witnesses, the saints that we would turn to. Um, but just because a saint so says something for us doesn't mean it's normative for the entire Christian experience. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain things that the community has recognized as being truthful beyond reproach. And in those instances, we have a mechanism by which we say, this is, this is truth. Uh, and that's our that's our synodal or uh, or conciliar tradition, where we yeah. gather together in synod and in, in council, and the and the determinations of the council are um, authoritative because it is the church gathering, and we we would hope that or we believe that the the Holy Spirit is what's guiding us to these decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's such a cool word, by the way, magisterium. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, it's interesting because it's kind of in a way the Orthodox Church is really similar to the scientific community um, where it's kind of these outlier messages or outlier points kind of get thrown out for the fact that there's an overall tradition. So it's hard to make I'm going to make a singular argument against this where it's it's like, um, well, we have all these other people who are just as smart or smarter than you for thousands of years at this point. We're going to keep going with the trajectory of what tradition is going as opposed to one outlier study and it's and it, a part of it is it's empirical too so it is scientific and even in more than one way like there's a professor yeah. um uh father john romanides uh and his his lectures like dogmatics is like uh theological lectures or have been translated under the Fun. title empirical dogmatics and it is it, the idea is that like uh it is by it's it, we, we experience and then it is the the coming together of those with shared experience that we begin to create a language full of signifiers that becomes the starting point for our conversation. So we're on the same page and even dogma in Greek, it's about, uh, it means to fence off. And, and we're, we're also very, uh, there's different ways of doing theology. There's cataphatic, which is like theology by affirmation, like God is this, God is that, this is this, this is that. Um, Mm -hmm. We prioritize apophatic, an apophatic approach, which is theology by negation, which it's, it's twofold. So it's the idea that you, you say God is not this, or the union of Christ, uh, the union of the divine and human in Christ is not this, not this, not this, and not this. Uh, But it's also, it's a, it's a, it's the reality that because God is completely other he is not like the biggest thing or the greatest you know thing in existence god is existence itself the ground of being beyond anything that we are um and so uh language is insufficient to capture the fullness of god's divinity um and so ultimately we leave it up to to like the angel of good silence we can't go any further here somewhere in the midst of this fence is the truth but we don't try to we don't try to be absolute in it. There's 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 you know we set boundaries so that we stay on the right path so that we can preserve the experience of communal uh, uh, the commun the communal experience of divine human communion. Um, but uh, there, but there's room for ambiguity. I, I sometimes like to say there's room for jazz in Orthodox theology. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. More yeah. more things should I be like that, that way. That's true. More things need jazz. Um, I maybe maybe this is a good time for for Father Jonathan either to condemn me or tell me um, that I'm stupid. I the more we're talking about this, the more I'm thinking about it. I, I realize I think in almost not consciously, I think I think of the canon almost on a spectrum 
where the, the stuff that I grew up with is like the Protestant canon or the stuff that St. Jerome thought of as canon. I'm like, that's super canon. And then you have stuff like the Maccabees and Enoch for me that I'm like, that's mostly canon. And then like the further you get out, the further I'm like, is that canon? I'm not really sure. Like, I don't feel like I draw a hard line at what is or isn't canon here. Yeah. I mean, that that that, that makes sense. I mean, and, and like there's reasons for it. Like, I think like like emerging out of like what is canon canon from that perspective, like that's not even that doesn't even come necessarily from a Christian tradition. It comes from mm-hmm. a first century Jewish tradition. So those are the books that they affirmed mm-hmm. as being inspired and, and canon. And so it's just a continuation of that. Um, whereas, you know, I mean, for us, it is very fluid. Like there's never, there's never been like, mm-hmm. like the reason we don't really use the term deuterocanonical, uh, like the, like, like the Catholics do is because that is a reference to a, a much later, uh, uh, like 15th or 16th century council, um, in the Catholic tradition. This is after the schism between East and West mm-hmm. that reaffirmed the longstanding tradition of including those books as part of the canon. And so it's yeah. not like it's a, it's not a second canon. Neutero canon just means second canon. It's not like a secondary canon added, but it is just like a formal recognition of a longstanding practice of including those books. Yeah. But that's never happened in the Orthodox Church. So it's always been kind of fluid, but there are clear, we do, we do set clear distinctions. Like this is mm-hmm. clearly not inspired, not canon. Um, and those are the books that we would definitely refer to as, uh, as, as, uh, as apocryphal. And, um, and, and, and like, it's hard for like, there's only a handful of Orthodox Bibles in English uh, with a complete canon. And a lot of times, like we're, we're forced if we want our, if we got all the books that are in our canon, we have to get like a, an edition of the Bible. Like the ESV has one, the RSV, mm-hmm. uh, has one, the, NRSV, which I'm not a huge fan of, um, <laughs> they um, they have they have a, a complete or a more expanded apocrypha, uh, but there's books in there that we don't include. Like Fourth Maccabees is not part of our canon. Um, the other book of Ezra is not part of our canon. Um, you know, so there's other other books that we that are not part of our canon, and we have to buy Bibles with them if we want the entirety of our canon. Um, no. And so. Yeah, we kind of find ourselves in a, in a little bit of a precarious state because there's like an Orthodox study Bible, which is just a New King James Version, New Testament with a modified New King James Old Testament that includes a, uh, the, the, a, the extended canon and the um, and the text of the NKJV was like adapted slightly to match the Septuagint because mm-hmm. that's our that's our received text. Yeah. So there's just a surprisingly underserved community for for the greek orthodox bible hmm. yeah yeah in english sad. i mean in, in, in english, the traditionally yeah, or, yeah, yeah. traditionally in yeah in greek we have like the challenge is it's like in, in <laughs> greek we still have to trans like there's i have a the audience can't see this but i have a book i have a bible here it's it's in greek but it's it's the bible translated into modern greek from the original Septuagint and New Testament. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Great. Uh, because the, the language has changed over the century. So there oh, are yeah. texts in other modern Orthodox countries' languages, but there's mm-hmm. only like one one edition of a complete Bible um, that is like decidedly Orthodox. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I got really excited. My parents went to, did a cruise in Europe 
my dad came back and, and you know, just a couple of years ago, I, I did my coin Greek classes for um, my biblical studies major that I, I do, I graduated guys. I have a biblical studies major now anyway. Um, but the, they came back and I was able to like, my dad got a book in Greece that he thought was so cool. I was like, Oh, I can pick out a few words. Like, this is cool. I'm going to start reading it. I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. never mind, guys. <laughs> like I got a couple words. And I was like, mm, Nope. This third word, some of those letters aren't even, I don't even know what that letter is anymore. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's different. Um, I'm going to ask you a really vague question, but okay. um, and, and it can go from like prehistory all the way to modern day. What other books or writings do you think that we should lift up that have influenced our traditions that maybe aren't considered canon or scripture? And what makes them different from scripture? Um, I would say that like I so it's really easy for me as an Orthodox Christian, just because like we we revere the writings of the church fathers like. I don't think people, people that, you know, aren't familiar with that don't realize, like, they shaped the world, their writings. Um, these were some of the most brilliant men and, and women, too. Some of the theological ideas that emerged in the early church came up, you know, were the, you know, the thoughts and, and experiences of, of women. Um, like, these are, like, profoundly beautiful, poetic texts. Um, I think, uh, I think... Uh, Anything that's like, like anything that emerges out of worship. So like the hymnographic tradition of the Orthodox church, I think is very beautiful. Like, uh, there, the, we sometimes say like, so it, it's a, it's a modern kind of American convention to do something like, like church school, catechetical school or Sunday school. Um, because historically how we taught our faith was through the hymns of the church. And so like, mm -hmm. if you come to church every week, uh, on a Sunday, you will hear like these beautiful theological profound hymns. And I don't think that's limited to the Orthodox tradition. I think that we like they're like the practice of, of, of worshiping through music and poetry. Um, uh, uh, like it can't be understated. Like it, it is so mm -hmm. valuable because it's, it's our response to the experience of faith. And that's why like, the book of Psalms is so profound. Like I always tell people, oh yeah, the book of Psalms is the prayer book of the church because it is it is the it is the story of the of humanity's relationship with God, but told from the human perspective. Mm -hmm. It is yeah. us reaching out in prayer, us calling out, us in pain, us in fear, us in rejoicing. It is like it is our voice. We can make those words our own. You can find a psalm for every feeling. Yeah, yeah. There are um. A total of two C.S. Lewis books that I, I am convinced that every Christian should take the mm -hmm. time to read. Um, and they're not the ones people will typically mention. Um, I would say The Four Loves, because I I think love is just central to what Christianity is. Um, and then uh, C.S. Lewis writes Reflection of the Psalms. And man, I, I tell you, if you grew up like me and you thought the Psalms were one thing and this is just authoritative Bible, whatever, and you didn't understand the humanity of the Psalms, uh, C.S. Lewis's writings will completely change your life. So I highly recommend Reflection yeah. on the Psalms. Yeah. I thought uh, I thought you were going to say Paralandra. That too, but for other yeah. reasons. That's not just Christians. Everyone should read Paralandra. <laughs> so there are other opinions around what scripture should be canon. Uh, so what, do you, what do you think the weakest points in those arguments are? Um, I think, uh, so I think in, in the traditions where there's fewer books, I think the a, a reliance on an ahistoric view of the development of the canon 
is problematic and that that emerges like understanding that the re like there's a there is possibly like a push against christianity bend in the selection of the jewish canon at the time that it was selected um and if you you see that further even when we prioritize something like the masoretic text because there are times when the hebrew doesn't make sense the way with the vocalization because Hebrew, when it's written normally, it doesn't have vowel sounds, doesn't have the pronunciation mm-hmm. mark. So the vocalizations create words that don't make sense when a different set of words actually matches a different set of uh, vocalizations actually match the Septuagint, which we have earlier copies of. The Masoretic text is like a tenth, a ninth, tenth century uh, version of the Old Testament. So I think that 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 part of it is a historic and then also and and i see this in, in like one particular arg- argument like super like uh like so often at the end of revelation when it says like nothing else can be added or removed mm-hmm. um people read that as if it's talking about the bound book that they have in their hand but the 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 scriptures are an anthology written over thousands of years it's not it didn't fall from heaven as a completed book it's a bunch of different mm-hmm. books. So that yeah. text is, I mean, if it is talking about anything, it's talking about the letter that, you know, the, the, you know, him who we would, we would say John, um, and some would say the, uh, the same as the author of the letters of John and the, and the, the gospel according to John. Uh, but whoever, but the author of the book of Revelation would be just talking about the book that he's, he's, he's written there. Um, and so that this kind of, misunderstanding of like what the bible is as a collection of meditation literature that uh communicates a a a a continuity between the creation of humanity until the coming of christ and and the immediate aftermath of that that is that have been gathered together to tell a story of salvation as it has been experienced it's it's a much different than just this book that falls down that you know found and and you know printed on the gutenberg press and <laughs> no, all that. Wouldn't that have been so i think those are those are two those are two things where it's like an ahistoric view of its development and a misunderstanding of what it is it is a collection mm. of, of varied medi- various meditation literatures in various styles that have been that have been written by numerous people over thousands of years. yeah the Bible it's is not very yeah, it's not like reading Lord of the Rings. It's like reading Dune. <laughs> so oh, that was a deep geek uh, reference. I love it. <laughs> so we are asking every guest to try their best to make uh, the best argument they can against their position. So if you had to make an argument for the Catholic canon of Scripture against your own canon, uh, how would that go? Or the Protestant canon? Or the Protestant canon? Yeah. Put yourself in my shoes. <laughs> Yeah, I think that the the argument would be, um, I think an argument would be like if we wanted to remain consistent with the like the the first century Jewish perspective, and we where we have a clear history of reception of particular texts, and again, it's only the Old Testament that's different. Um, mm-hmm. uh, then I could see why, like if there was some way that that was somehow more. Uh, that was like a more authentic position. Like it made like, like if that's what we wanted to do and we wanted to preserve this particular line 
of Judaism into our Christianity, then I could see why that for the Protestant canon. For the mm-hmm. Catholic canon, it's just two books. Um, it's like it's hard for me to say like like I love Third Maccabees. I think it's an interesting text, but it, 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 it so doesn't really Maccabees. much talk about God. It, it, in a lot of those, a lot of the uh, most of the Maccabees doesn't talk about God. And in it, mm-hmm. it's more just a historical book. It's propaganda in some cases. Um, but um, uh, like for that text and for Ezra, like, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of like, there's, I think even those texts are like found in some uh, appendices to the Vulgate. So like, it's, it, there's kind of a fluid tradition there. And so it's a little bit harder because we share so many of the same books. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for the, like that, that, you know, priority given to a, a received Jewish tradition that has a clearly delineated Hebrew Aramaic-ish text of the Old Testament that has been like that we know for a fact was received by at least one one branch of Judaism in the first century, then then that makes sense. Um, but I think well, I would you know the, like part of I, I would I'm now I'm redismantling that position because it wasn't the, it wasn't the text that the the early Christians the authors of the New Testament were using, and so it. It, that like that would be the argument for, but I think it would be inconsistent with the with the early church's experience. So, if you had to make an argument against, um, I guess, I guess experience defining the scripture, how else would you define what is scripture? Um, Sounds like you need a council. Yeah, I mean that's the reality of it. Or, or like the, the part of the the challenge for like uh, like those who have come out of the Reformation is there's like a it's like a starting point of a received tradition. And I'm gonna mm-hmm. get outside of biblical studies to like give you an example within Orthodoxy. So Greek Orthodox liturgical worship is more fluid in its implementation than Russian Orthodox liturgical worship. That is because the because the Russians received a already existing liturgical tradition a thousand years after the early Christians that were Greek speaking began to cultivate their liturgical practices. And mm. so they are handed a liturgical text and they are, they are dogmatic about its implementation at times. Whereas ortho, whereas in uh, Greek, the Greek tradition, because it developed over time, we have a historical memory of the fluidity and the dynamism of liturgical worship and so we're like although we have rules there's also some fluidity there another example comes outside of christian tradition sort of altogether where it's like um historically speaking there is a a, like scholasticism and out of scholasticism ultimately comes like the, the the like people get out of the dark ages and into kind of the area in the renaissance and mm-hmm. the you know eventually the reformation as people are more educated, but it started with the rediscovery of classical Greek philosophical texts, like that kind of sparked this way of like like reason reasoning and and and, uh, and scholasticism out of which kind of, I think some of these traditions emerge. And so there was a period of time where that was lost. But if you look in the East, which had a continuity of language and a continuity of education. We actually see development in philosophy where the classical philosoph- 
philosophers are built upon, like they built on the early ones built upon, like, you know, Socrates to Plato to Aristotle, you see that continuation in the East into the future. Um, and so uh, that's why, like, you, you, you see new ways of philosophizing leading up into the, the like what would be in the West, the Middle Ages and, and the Dark Ages, uh, and, like where people weren't like learning and reading and all of that. Um, where like people were discussing theology in the streets, they were reading the, like theological philosophical texts. They were they were reading Plato and Aristotle, and then everyone that came after them. So there's a continuity in that, and um, and there's a correlation there with this kind of like lived experience of scripture because we we never stopped speaking the language of the text that we received. Mm -hmm. So how is it possible to have unity with other Christians? when we don't agree about the Bible itself, if this is the foundation for many of our beliefs, how can we move forward in unity without having the same scriptures as our starting point? Yeah. I think one safeguard from the Orthodox perspective is anything, anything theological, like we, it has to like, like we, we don't use these additional texts to make like absolute statements about theology they can be sources in the conversation but these they have to arise out of like the, the like the, mm -hmm. the the those 39 books of the old testament mm -hmm. like, like we, we like there is like a, a slight degree change to which their authority can stand on their own so that's part of it i think one of the challenges is um i mean orthodox people can be like really parochial and, and stuff like this about it but oftentimes you know the challenge is we are confronted with this idea that like we we add extra books and therefore we add stuff to the scripture and and part of it is like it, it's not necessarily the books it's how we understand them as well in their in their role as authoritative i think that's the bigger challenge in this conversation is we don't have doctrines like sola scriptura in the east mm -hmm. Um, it, it, so we don't, we don't use the scripture in the same way. And I think that becomes, that's a more problematic issue. I think we can get over the canonical concerns. I think like, you know, I've, I've, the, the audience can't see me, but I got dozens of Bibles back there. <laughs> Not all of them have the additional, the extended, uh, canon in them. Like many of them are just like NKJVs, CSBs, you know, like all of those, and they don't have those. And so I think that, you know, it's that 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 is an easy thing to overcome as long as the other side can acknowledge that we agree on like the fundamentals of faith and these like core biblical texts, particularly in the New Testament. Um, but we can't demonize or um, call into question the Christianity of another group because they have a different view on canon. I think it's easier yeah. for us to do that because we have a like. Ours is more fluid to begin with. Like we didn't have this this defining moment, like the in the in the Catholic tradition that like they established once and for all these additional texts as canon. Uh, this yeah. is just kind of like our received inheritance, but we don't have like a moment in time to point to to say like this is it once and for all. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of think of a have it as a um as a meal almost, where like uh, the Protestant canon we got the we got the meat and the greens. And then the Catholics got the potatoes and then you guys got the corn with it. And it's like, man, y'all got a, a fuller plate. And, and I think the issue is when I say, oh, it's not really a meal if you have the corn 
or, you know, you know, it's one of those, I, I feel like it's easier on one hand to say, okay, you have the meat and the greens. That's what matters. And it's harder for the other side to see, well, you have these potatoes and that's ruining the plate for some reason, you know, like, oh, the corn, that's too much. You're making the plate, you know, whatever. I, I think one example I, I, a lot of people point to in second Maccabees, there, there's a scripture where uh, Judas Maccabee prays for the dead and he makes atonement for the dead. And some people say, oh, that's the only place where, where we see this theology where you can atone for the dead. It's not true, by the way. But a lot of Protestants point to that as why we don't like some of these extra canonical stuff or what we would consider extra canonical. Um, and, and I think for you guys, the issue is more, well, there's more to it than just these scriptures that you're looking at. I don't, I don't know. I, I just It seems like there's a, there's kind of a lopsidedness to it where it's harder for people of the Protestant faith with our only selected few books to see the bigger picture than it is the other way around yeah no that, that totally makes sense and you know there's lots of ways to 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 approach that and i don't think it's like like i'm like, like I, it's not a, i wouldn't fault it or it's in, you know like it, it makes sense to have that perspective you know and it's uh yeah. understandable which is why like i always try to like welcome people and be inviting and i always like mm-hmm. to hear what like why people believe what they believe where it's coming mm-hmm. from the one thing that I, I do encourage people to be is like be intellectually honest because whether or not you like you you like would believe in something like a tradition you exist in traditions like 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 the yeah. idea of sola scriptura emerges out of a tradition a particular tradition of reading the scripture the idea that like these texts are are canon versus other ones aren't that's like that's that is arising out of a tradition of reading the scripture. Um, and so, like, just understanding that whether or not, or whether or not we, we realize it or acknowledge it, uh, we are existing in our inheritance and, and just being intellectually honest enough to know that. And, and, and when you can do that, then you can start to see, like, you know, this is where we differ. Like, we, we, we come from different perspectives, different experiences, and we want to be, we want to be able to receive each other in that, but we just want to, you know, everyone has to, to find themselves on the same footing that you are existing, you know, standing on the shoulders of those who came before you. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we always like to ask our guests for practical action to help maintain unity. I want to get more specific here. You mentioned that sola scriptura might be the bigger challenge than just the canon. Um, how, how do we have unity or help each other see one another's side when something like this doctrine kind of separates us? Yeah, and I think this is what the biggest challenge is to unity, because there ultimately, like, there are, are things that are, like, we can have, like, relationships and, and exist as we are, but there ultimately will come down to doctrines that we both, you know, both sides find to be fundamental and are insurmountable. Mm-hmm. I think that we can have community and, and, and fellowship and friendship, but to have, like, unity, like, there are things that we... we you know, both sides won't give up on. And how do we, so I think it's, it's how we exist in that reality um, that um, that becomes the, the, the challenge. And I don't think there's an answer for it necessarily um, because if these are fundamental aspects of belief that differ, um, which is why we, we say that we are, you know, all of one Christian, like we're all Christians, um, but it's also okay to say that, you know, we don't have the same faith in every respect, like, because yeah. some of these things are fundamental to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And that's okay. Um, but, I, but I wouldn't say, like, 
allowing that reality to exist without mean without like demeaning or belittling someone who like believes differently than you is really important allowing someone to exist as they are but like sharing like the orthodox church participates in things like the world council of churches or the you know the local council of churches type thing but we always do it to say like we are here to share ourselves as we are like it's it's not mm -hmm. like um we're not there to compromise things that we hold to yeah. and and that, that's okay just like i would i would expect that you know there are many people in the catholic and the protestant traditions as well that would say like we we want to share ourselves as we are and these are fundamental beliefs and that's okay um, yeah. but that that does stand as a barrier like I, I i would say perhaps insurmountable until christ comes again um <laughs> yeah that, that that separates us and i i, I we need to be okay with that reality, but not let it deter us from building friendships. Because, like, I was telling people earlier today as I, that I was going to be uh, doing this podcast, and I was like, I really enjoy my time talking with you guys. I, 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 I mean, we don't talk all that much, but I, I consider you friends. As much as we should. <laughs> yeah, like, and, um, and we can exist in that way. And uh, part of the challenge that like brings us to our present culture is we that is so hard to do in this present culture because we yeah. silo ourselves. And, the, and it's not just that we see someone as dis, we disagree with them, but they are our enemies. And that's not a healthy approach. That's not... You know, we can we can hold fast to our uh, and, and affirm our uh, your seated beliefs, uh -huh. um, while also having dialogue, communication, public discourse, and disagreement, and still uh -huh. existing as friends. And it's we don't live in a culture where that's celebrated or uh -huh. or even let alone like we, we don't have a semblance of it in a lot of uh -huh. instances. Uh -huh. Everything is so defensive. So yeah, that's why it's uh, even harder to see that when we do that Spider-Man episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that's why everyone should read Vinland Saga. Uh, I've heard good things. Become Thorfinn. You have no enemies. Yeah. To go back to my, um, my, my image of the plate, I think what a lot of times what happens is we have the meat and greens and we hear someone wants the potatoes or corn and we're like, oh, those are gross. And it's not just saying, oh, those are gross. I don't need those. You can have them. A lot of times it's like, because you have this, we assume you don't like the grains. You don't like the meat. Um, wh what I'm getting at, I, I think a good unity practice, define for yourself, what are the meats and the greens? What are those things that you think are the necessary things? And look up what those other things view of this. Don't just say, oh, because Orthodox have these other books, they don't believe what I believe. Well, look up what do they believe about the Bible? Maybe they don't believe Sola Scriptura, but they do still believe in the Bible and they don't let anything contradict it. And that's actually important that we understand that because even yeah. though it's not Sola Scriptura, that doctrine is still able to work alongside what I believe. It just, they also add to it. It's not that they're taking anything away. Um, and I know this is just one really specific, one specific example. We're talking about like Protestant Orthodox churches, but I think a lot of times we just assume because they believe in this other doctrine, they can't believe these other fundamental things and that's mm -hmm. just usually not true so i think it's yeah. worth identifying what you think of as fundamental and look up what these other people believe about it other groups yeah, yeah. I, I heard this one it might have been like a catholic apologist or something that said said one time uh he was like quoting someone who said um like a lot of people uh uh like a lot of a lot of protestant christians have these feelings of animosity towards catholics 
but the Catholic Church that they think is wrong isn't the Catholic Church that actually exists. Yeah, that that um, happens. Yeah, and the same thing goes on our side. Like, you know, like a lot of times there are people that like have fundamental issues with, you know, a, a Protestant tradition or a, a, or the Catholic Church or something like that. But the, the the disagreements they have are not actually there, you know. And and, yeah. and if there is something, it might be something that like. A certain particular community does, but isn't the widespread belief? It might just be, it might just be a bad habit or something like that of a particular oh, yeah. community. Yeah, the amount of people I know who are Protestant who think that absolutely all Catholics think that uh, salvation is achieved through Mary or that Mary is equal to Christ. It's like there is technically like a really small section of Catholics who believe some divine thing about Mary. But it is a very small group of Catholics. Like usually they respect and honor Mary, but they don't put her on par with Jesus necessarily. So I, mm-hmm. it's just a very fundamentally flawed understanding of what the Catholics believe yeah. about Mary. Yeah. The, the, the I Catholic, wish more than was here right now. Yeah. The, <laughs> the Catholic us. misinformation engine uh, That's crazy. down south yeah. is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it works hard. True. Uh, we're kind of we're kind of immune from that because a lot of people don't even know what we are. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I do get the question: Are you Christian or are you Catholic? And I go, well, yeah. I was I would say I was a Christian, Both? but uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but we also recite the creed that calls ourselves the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So like, yeah. It's a challenging I, question. I went to a Methodist church around here that does the Apostle Creed, but instead of saying Catholic, they see the one universal church. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not quite the creed, is it? I mean, yeah, I guess ca- it is. Catholic, but... Catholic uh, in Greek just means, it mean, does mean universal. Yeah. It's so just like they're going out of their way not to use that word. <laughs> or they'll say the first universal epistle uh, versus yeah. the first Catholic epistle. It's the <laughs> same, yep. same word. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So before we wrap up our show, uh, we like to do our God moment. And I just ask everyone to share a moment where they saw God recently, whether that be a blessing, challenge, moment of worship, whatever it may be. And I always make Josh go first uh, just to give the rest of us time to think. So, Josh, do you have a God moment for us today? Um, yes, I maybe this is a weird one, but it's uh, it, me and my wife's anniversary was recent. Our four-year anniversary. Go us. Woo. Four is crazy. Yeah, right. We were going to do what, you know, what like what's expected of you when you do an anniversary, like Maggiano or like some kind of like sit-down restaurant and like romantic whatever reservations. And it's not that it wasn't reservations. It, it was more of like just talking with her and realizing, you know what? We'd like rather than what society puts on us, we would both like to just go to this one taco place we haven't been to downtown <laughs> and maybe play a game. And just, you know, that's fine. That's like, that's more us. And I, I think that the God moment is just more realizing even I, everyone has these like expectations that we think society puts on us and being able to look outside of that sometimes and just be true to yourself, I, I think is something that uh, God wants of all of us. And, you know, it wasn't that that moment was a God moment. It's more just like looking back on it going, I could probably do that better more often instead of just right then. <laughs> yeah. 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 TJ. Uh I, I have sad news. Uh, I'm not sure if I've mentioned it yet, but my, my gerbil has passed away. What? Trying times. Um, what happened? He died. Yeah, but like, was he sick? He just kind of stopped eating. Oh. Gerbils don't live that depressing. long. Oh, I didn't know that. That is yeah. sad. I think the oldest one in captivity was like four. Oh. <laughs> Maybe. Don't get a gerbil. Maybe. I <laughs> but, man. Uh, and despite that, 
uh, I wasn't sad. I wasn't. I was just glad that he was here. Yeah, fair. For as long as he was. Fair. Yeah. Father Jonathan, do you have a God moment for us? Hmm. Yeah. So, Make it less depressing. <laughs> well, it'll start slightly depressing, but it'll be... Oh, okay. okay. It'll Good. be a plus. Um, so I, uh, it was a, I had a, uh, it was a big pastoral concern in the community this past week that I was working hmm. through, and it required a lot of meetings. I was exhausted. Um like really overwhelmed. I was not sleeping. Uh, and I was walking down the hall and we have a preschool uh, at uh, Holy Trinity and the kids were coming down the hall too. And they all just ran to me, like 10 kids and just gave me the biggest yeah, that's group great. hug. Um, some of them call me Jesus, which is funny because I, uh, <laughs> your, your audience can't see this, and you guys might have, but I have like a, a man bun, but like I have super long hair, and so I, I think I had my <laughs> hair down, and I have a long beard, so I kind of look like that stereotypical <laughs> Jesus. And they're like Jesus, and they ran up and gave me a hug, and it just reminded me that um, thus belongs the kingdom of God, and all the troubles and worries of this pastoral responsibility and you know matter. Mm-hmm it'll work out if I just have faith like them. If I can just run, like I'm not Jesus, but run to Jesus. Like they would run to me mm-hmm. calling me Jesus. Um, it would be okay. Yeah. I'm still not there yet fully, but I am in a place where I can, I, I look longingly, look forward longingly to the, the moment when I can, I can just run and, and leave it up to him as I'm discerning how to respond to this past one. So please consider sharing the episode with a friend, an enemy, uh, share with your cousins, big fan of your cousins, uh, mm-hmm. rate and review our show on Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. Uh, if you're just ripping these episodes off of some website because Spotify is not available <laughs> where you are, um, leave a good review, please. And yeah. maybe stop. I, I, I'm always interested we we always get a few downloads that are just like random Middle East countries. I'm always interested. Why? No, you know, I'm glad you're listening. I'm, I'm curious, like, what drew you? So, you know, let us know. Go in the comments. I'm just curious what drew you to the show. But, um, yeah, and, and while you're at it, check out other Amazal Ministry Podcast Network shows, you know, AMP Network shows. We have uh, The Homily with Will Rose. He's a, you know, Lutheran pastor in Chapel Hill. He's going to be on this episode. Wasn't able to make it because of Ash Wednesday coming up for him tomorrow. Um, a little bit later for Orthodox Church and things. Um, anyway, uh, you know, we have other shows. Systematic Ecology is another one we're on. I do Dummy for Theology, where I just uh, show some different perspectives, different theological ideas. Check it out. We hope that uh, you check them all out and enjoy it. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed this. Next week, we'll have uh, Brandon Knight and Christian Ashley uh, to discuss how we can have unity while disagreeing over eschatology. And after that, Crip Fuller will be joining us to discuss differing opinions around the doctrine of atonement. Uh at the end of season one, we will have Francis Chan on the show. He doesn't know that, though. Uh, we are yeah. six we years are, running strong for season one. <laughs> season one won't end. And I hope that the audience has picked up on that by now. If not, sorry. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Whole Church Podcast. Again, you could always sponsor our show at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast or on captivate.fm or on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a one time tip through Captivate. Thank you for listening.